1: Welcome to the Folklife Today podcast. I'm Alina Migwani, a reference librarian at the American Folklife Center, and I'm joined here today with my colleague, Michelle Stefano, a Folklife Specialist at the Center. And in honor of Women's History Month, we're doing a takeover of the podcast. Sorry, John and Steve, for giving you the boot.
2: Hi, Alina. A takeover. Woo! We'll be co-hosting this episode highlighting women's stories found throughout the American Folklife Center's archives. As Women's History Month is officially winding down, although it, we can celebrate women every day, our team decided to take a look through our collections to find insights into how women have shaped those around them and passed down their traditions and to listen to reflections about their identities and lives. As we know, women's lives are multifaceted and dynamic, obviously, and in this episode, we will listen to a few um, people describe their life's journeys how they came to be artists, their relationships with their families, and their impacts on their communities and more. We hope by hearing these women discuss in their own words their craft and professions, we can celebrate the many ways in which women impact our lives and society.
1: We'll begin in Montana with audio from our Montana Folklife Survey Collection, a regional survey conducted in 1979 in cooperation with the Montana Arts Council. We'll then jump to Gaithersburg, Maryland to speak with Sarah Soane, a farmer gardener at the Young Soane Gardens. We'll return to our survey collections in this time in the Blue Ridge Parkway Folklife Collection in Sparta, North Carolina, and then on to New Jersey via the Pinelands Folklife Project. We'll later be joined by our colleague, Thea Austin, our public events coordinator extraordinaire and producer of our Homegrown Concert Series, who interviewed Maryland artist Mary Shepard Burton to discuss the impact Mary had not only on her community of artisans, but also discuss the impression she left on Thea and their time
2: together. Let's begin with hearing from the Nagashima family, with matriarch Io, her son David, and David's wife Yoshiko. In this first clip, you'll hear Yoshiko describe the family's foodways traditions. This interview is rich with discussions on food, as well as musings on their community and traditional Japanese folklore. You can also briefly hear interviewer and translator Miko Tolkien speak about her own shared experiences. Again, this is taken from the Montana Folklife Survey Collection, a regional fieldwork survey conducted in 1979. The online presentation includes photographs of the Nagashima family and all three parts to this interview. It also includes about 145 sound recordings and over 10,000 photographs. It covers a wide variety of occupations, such as sheep herding, ranching, blacksmithing, as well as traditional music, such as fiddle and accordion music, Irish music, hymns, and more. It's definitely worth exploring. Well. Our breakfast is American breakfast,
3: isn't it? <laughs> but the dinner as a whole, he thinks if you have rice, it's filling. Uh-huh. So we have the regular Japanese meat and vegetables, you know, okazu or o Some not all the time. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. depends on how hot or how cold the weather is. Uh-huh. So our main uh, menu in Japanese would be dinner. Or do you now what's the difference between dinner and lunch? We call a 12 o'clock meal a dinner. Well, when you have a sandwich and a cup of coffee, it's lunch. <laughs> well, is that when right? When you have bigger than that, then it's dinner. <laughs> uh, do you call your bang gohan gohan? Yuhan. Yuhan. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Oh, is that referred to supper? Well, yuhan is dinner, yeah. dinner. Oh, is that right? Uh-huh. Oh, I see. But in our home, we when my mother said gohan, then we knew that it was dinner time. That's uh-huh. when we had. Of
4: course,
3: gohan with. Just Uh the yeah, p- topic, right? uh-huh. did, did you ever pan nigiri?
0: <laughs> just just when I go fishing. <laughs>
3: just when you go fishing. And uh, nigiri and <coughs> is just gohan. Yeah. You make omusubi. Yeah, musubi. Uh-huh. Yeah, and then sometimes otsukemono. But then once I, the I put some nori uh, o sushi in his lunch, uh-huh. and he works at Sears he's an automotive, and you uh-huh. eat with other men, uh-huh. and he says those people kept on saying what are you eating those things that's wrapped with black paper? You know, that seaweed mm-hmm. around it. And he didn't know it. He, he cleaned his lunch, but he says, don't uh, give yeah. me any more of those things for lunch. He, yeah. said he, he had to keep a- answering all kinds of questions. Everybody was curious what he was eating.
0: I lose my lunch, yeah. I yeah. questions.
3: Yeah. He said it was good, uh-huh. but my daughter said she always packs a Japanese lunch for her husband because it's more filling than a sandwich. Mm-hmm.
0: But you know, like when I go fishing? The, all my friends, they're getting to like them, you know, when they have fried yeah, chicken and, they really uh-huh. do. and nigiri, nigiri and... otsukemono
3: uh, uh-huh. And, and, uh, and um, uh, or something. you put umeboshi and umeboshi yeah, the, yes. uh-huh. Uh-huh. yeah.
0: Uh-huh. And they're getting uh-huh. to like it.
1: What originally drew me to this three-part interview with the Nagashima family is how relatable their back and forth is. There are two generations in this room discussing the food that connects them and how their friends and co-workers receive and then grow to love their food. As a result, cementing these social bonds. The field workers also relate to this very human experience, breaking bread together, so to speak. I know I'm super proud of my cultural background and the food I grew up with, but it is interesting, that moment of pride when others who aren't familiar with your cuisine become addicted and ask for more. Here's another snippet from this interview where they discuss how they're the hit of the community picnic.
3: Because when we go to a picnic with a, uh, how could you, you know that's the American people, you know, the white people? Well, it's either coleslaw, potato salad. But she always
5: has to take chow mein.
3: Yeah, they love chow mein mein and tempura. Uh Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's my specialty. And when we have people here for guests, American people, no roast, no nothing, all Japanese food, they love chow mein. That's why Uh my daughter says, how come you folks eat so much rice when there's only three of you, but it's not us? Uh It's when I have come, that's what we Mm -hmm. get, rice. Make mozi go on, no sushi. Mm. Whatever the occasion mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm.
0: Like a lot of our friends, you know, mm-hmm. we even got them the lichen sashimi.
3: Uh-huh. Yes. Really yeah, my husband know. loves sashimi. sashimi.
4: Does he? Yeah, he loves sashimi.
1: Listening to this interview, it's clear how the attention and effort that goes into their cooking can be understood as the love and care they have for their family and friends. Here at the AFC, we frequently reference cultural tradition berries and artistry but we chose this interview to show how the women in our lives can be cultural tradition bearers, even if they don't think of it in such formal language.
2: Yes, the connections to our cultures and those who have come before that we create through these daily duties and acts of service for one another are vital for keeping our traditions alive, for educating newer generations on what it means to be a part of our cultures and for the formation of our identities. It must be said, so often this labor falls upon the women in our lives, to be responsible for these connections to home and tradition. We also hope that showcasing these types of interviews in our archives may generate interest from our listeners to learn more and maybe take part in their own cultural documentation projects such as interviewing family and community members and friends. You can even start at home around the dinner table reflecting about where you learned to cook and your favorite foods or dishes, just like in this interview. And
1: to also know that these stories matter. Remember, they're collected in the world's largest library, and these musings on place and culture are valued. To hear stories so similar to our own experiences across time and place is remarkable. The Montana Folklife Survey Collection, as well as our other survey collections, includes so many reminiscences and musings on daily life in their region. Here's one more selection. This time from Part Three of their interview, where you can hear this really lovely moment of Kay and Miko, the field workers, discuss with Yoshiko how David's mother Io has created this beautiful cat out of yarn and soap. Oh, look at
4: this! That's what it, Koso no Doll. See, she made the eyes for it.
3: Mom, what <laughs> happened to you? You have to cap on a bushy. Oh, oh. oh isn't that cute? Mm-hmm.
4: Oh mm. my goodness! How many?
3: Let's see. Um, four, four yards <laughs> or you what? It's so cute. It is so cute she loves to. Make every time uh-huh. she sees something like uh-huh. that, lamb and this, uh-huh. and she should make a uh-huh. little soap bars what of soap and make a little a pool can oh, She can crochet cute. over it.
4: Oh, and
3: then at this uh, for oh. extension when we have this hobby day at the extension of you know, people wanna buy some,
4: you know, so you they know I yeah.
3: I'm having a terrible time from the craft shop to get yeah, the eyes. eyes you know, sometimes when they're there and I'm not there. Oh. So uh-huh. I'm taking my chance but she made several so? like that. Mm-hmm. But she's way better than I am. She sees mm-hmm. something, she wants to make it right away, mm-hmm. where I don't. Uh-huh. Right, I always say, oh, the dust sketch or uh-huh. something, you know. I don't
4: hear much. It's on that little on. The yeah, you stitch part. all
3: that yarn by thread. Oh, no. Oh. You wrap it around cardboard, and then uh-huh. you yes. get a thread and go right through it. Mm-hmm. 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 So many times when my mm-hmm. friends come here, they say, can we come and visit you? Those They spend a whole day, they bring their it's craft, mm-hmm. and mother is teaching them. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. <laughs> it is. Yeah, oh boy. Everybody marvels, you know, mm-hmm. this is just this. part of the thing, it's not, you know. Uh-huh. But this is how she spends her day. Mm-hmm. It's just It is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it is. really. It's At this uh, age, and if you got your health... It's rare. She goes for a checkup every uh-huh. two times a year because mm-hmm. she has uh, Heart condition. You he that, you know, changes all. And she loves doing this type uh-huh. of work. That's
6: so good.
3: And I don't. Uh-huh. I couldn't care less. It certainly is fussy work. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. Some of us have it, and mm-hmm.
1: some of us don't. <laughs> <laughs> Yoshiko is a riot when she says exactly what's on her mind. At the end, um, she goes, "I couldn't care less." Honestly, this was my favorite part of the whole interview. It felt so familiar. For me, my grandmother inspired me to pursue art because she's an artist in her own right. She actually, for a time, supported herself making traditional Mexican artwork and clothes to sell to tourists in a big shop downtown by her home. We call her a spider since she can crochet blankets in a day and she's made me purses and blouses. Frequently, I get asked where they're from and I tell them, Grandma. Um, Just like Io, as Yoshiko said, If she sees it, she can make it. And just like Yoshiko, when it comes to my own talent, well, I wouldn't say that I couldn't care less, but I certainly cannot crochet like my grandma. All
2: that is to say, that brings
1: us to our next interview.
2: Next up is an interview that's part of our Finding Roots, Asian American Farmers in Contemporary America collection as part of the Occupational Folklife Project collections. The Occupational Folklife Project, which began in 2010, works to document the cultures and traditions we create in our job cultures, our occupational lives. Field workers apply for a grant, the Archie Green Fellowship, to conduct this documentation and conduct roughly one-hour interviews to discuss with participants their current jobs, the knowledge they possess in and skills in doing their jobs and the culture within their work, uh, as well as formative experiences that led to their profession and what brought them on that path.
1: Sarah Sohn is a farmer gardener, and I love this interview because she said it so clearly how her cultural background, as well as her high school job, of all things, came together to create this sort of epiphany of identity.
2: Yeah, in this interview, Sarah says that her coming out coincided with her discovery of organic produce and gardening with her father, and even states that vegetarianism was quote unquote code for so many things in her life, namely being queer. To think her rebellious stage, as her parents put it, was when she decided she was a vegetarian. This also speaks to the theme of this month's podcast. Women are dynamic in highlighting these intersectional stories where who we are is shaped by our cultures, our family, when our parents immigrated or not, and our gender and sexuality is important to feature, uh, an important feature of the makeup of our society.
1: Exactly. I could connect to this interview and see myself in Sarah's words, even if we have different ethnicities and professions. This interview from 2021 really resonated with me. She has this really poignant observation where, after discussing how she ate American food for school lunch and was never really bullied for being Korean, or at least for eating Korean food, she states that there's this misconception from mainstream white culture that all first, second, third generation immigrants want to assimilate, and that's just not true. I want to agree that there's a pride of where we come from and one of the ways we show it while also maintaining a connection to our homeland is through food.
7: I think there's a phenomenon that people don't like, I, you know, that like the mainstream kind of white culture doesn't like really know about, which is that like, uh, right, it's not like we're not particularly like longing, to, like just, have, you know, um, access like to white culture for, for to have like uh white mainstream culture to be our home that's not really like and there might even be actually a lot of like ways in which like we feel superior to do you know what i mean like you know uh i don't know if this is going on the record but
2: another poignant moment in sarah's interview is listening to her discuss her evolution from home gardener to farmer contemplating her connection to her dad and his influence along the way before he passed After hours, um, she brings her father to a field of garlic that she's working on and discusses their bond. She describes their moment as a, quote, very quiet exchange, a very sensory exchange. And you almost feel like you're there with them. She sets the stage really beautifully.
7: The other crop that we grew there in a big way was garlic. And it was hardneck garlic. And I remember my dad being kind of like just confounded, um, like, just, like, mystified by my, at once both mystified and, like, having a kind of, like, he was sort of amused, um, by my interest in this stuff. And also, like, there was something about it that, like, I respect might go too far, but, like, there was something about it that, like, um... I don't know, like it never went said between us. He didn't like belittle it. He was definitely like both, my, my mom was just like, why? <laughs> just why, <laughs> you know? Uh, my mom, now she she loves it. But like my mom, like if she had her way, like would never touch dirt, like ever. Um, my dad more like, you know, I remember us like, we would like squish, uh, you know, like the Japanese beetles on roses. Like, like there would be like certain things that we would do ritually and kind of like you know not talk but do it like as a parallel play thing and you know and then and like occasionally uh, he'd like swear and be like ah these <laughs> um, and like it was like our bonding and we'd be like ah look at these and, you know we put them in the soapy water uh, so like I did more of that kind of guarding stuff with him but anyway I remember him coming to um, visit me at the be- visit me at my apartment in Ann Arbor. And then he wanted to go see the farm. And it was like, after hours or whatever. So I remember us like, I was like, I guess you can say, I guess it's okay. But I I didn't even like, you know, nobody had cell phones. so I didn't call like my boss or anything. But we just drove by and it was was kind of dusky. And it must have been kind of in like, it must have been kind of like June-ish because the garlic was scaping. Um, and I remember us like driving out. I remember the farm had like a German Shepherd, and my dad being like, "Ah, but is like," and uh, yeah, it's like very cinematic in my in my memory. You know, my my dad passed away, and like this is like a core memory I have of like, um, yeah, just like standing together looking at the garlic field and like these swan like scapes that looked really really beautiful on this in this dusky light. And they just had, you know, that kind of powdery like sheen that um, they have at that point in their growth. And um, we just kind of like looked at it and like admired it. And I don't really remember like what exactly he said, except he kept going like, oh, it's garlic, you know, like a scarlet, you know, like, oh, like, you know, and it's like looking at it. And yeah, I think like something kind of shifted after that. I hadn't made any kind of like particular commit it was like just literally a summer job I wasn't like now I'm gonna be a farmer but like there was something you know like different about me that had kind of recurred throughout my childhood and adolescence in relationship to this stuff that um I think maybe made some kind of sense uh in that moment between my dad and I at least um And yeah, obviously garlic being such a core Korean crop, like it being a crop that he would have seen in Korea growing in that way.
2: This
1: is such a moving image of father and daughter quietly contemplating their lives, the impact they have on one another, and seeing this image of a garlic field, a Korean staple, as Sarah notes, a view that her father may have seen countless times back in Korea. These are the imprints we leave on one another via explicit storytelling or through quietly gardening and smashing bugs side by side. Honestly, Sarah's laugh is so contagious, and this description of a core memory for her has really sat with me for some time since I first heard it. These are definitely the stories we should be sharing. I also want to note, Sarah Sohn went to law school, and she advocated for immigration rights and has worked with a number of communities, including LGBTQ and HIV-positive immigrants. So this interview is definitely worth listening to her whole evolution in her profession and life.
2: Yeah, thanks, Selina. Another reflection on how our parents impact our worlds and how we as women impact others can be seen or uh, found in the Blue Ridge Parkway Folklife Project collection and in the interviews with women in particular who are quilt makers. In it, Donna Choate and Zena Todd reflect on the women who taught them to quilt, the Blue Ridge Parkway Folklife Project was undertaken by AFC staff in cooperation with the National Park Service between 1977 and 1981. Ten folklorists conducted fieldwork in August and September of 1978, and you can hear the results of their uh, efforts in the online presentation on the Library of Congress website. So let's listen to Donna Choate in her own words.
4: Did you ever quilt with a group of people? No, ma'am. No, we never. Now, older people had quiltings. My mother would have quiltings. hmm And the ladies would come, maybe three or four. And they'd quilt out a quilt or two that day. Then they had a way, a thing they called tacking quilts. You heard of that, too, haven't you? They tacked them. There's just one, one stitch. But that takes a lot, awful lot of time cutting them threads. Do you ever do that, tack a quilt? No, I haven't tacked a quilt, not since I've lived here, I don't think. No, I don't tack them. My mother wasn't much for tacks. She said they come apart too easily, hmm. and she wouldn't, now a lot of people used old clothing, but I never did see her. She might use an old blanket if it was getting kind of thin and worn. She might use an old blanket, but I never did see her use old clothing in a quilt, but I have seen others do that.
1: Here's Donna again describing another woman in her life, Mrs. Thompson's mother, who never seemed to stop making quilts.
4: Has quilting changed a lot since you started quilting? Uh, the pattern of quilting? Yeah, no. Quilting in general? Uh, yes, quilting in general has ceased. has ceased. Mm-hmm. You hardly ever hear tell anyone making a quilt. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Mrs. Thompson's mother, she's an elderly woman, and she, liked, and she loved to make quilts. She had two daughters, and she, did, she had enough quilts to last her her lifetime, and the girls, too, but she still liked the quilt. Mm-hmm. And she uh, would work upstairs in her bedroom, she'd make quilts, and she'd get a quilt in the frames, and sometimes I'd have to help maybe once, one or two days to get that quilt out, because she was getting old, she died at 78. And uh, she couldn't hold out that long. And she said, Donna, if I ever get this one out, I'm not going to try another one. And after dinner, every day when I was there, I'd have to go upstairs and help her the rest of the day with her quilt.
2: (laughs) Donna learned to quilt from her mother and at the time of the interview had not made a quilt in several years. However, she was a prolific quilter and made them exclusively for her family and circle. This next interview with Zena Todd is hilarious. Zena discusses her first time quilting and the women who taught her, or really left her to her own devices. Honestly, this whole
1: interview sounds like
2: something I would do.
5: But I will not never forget the first quilt that I cut out by pattern. It was a monkey range. And my mother-in-law, she was going to show me how to quilt, you know, and how to do it. So she helped me to get started and the lining was uh, kind of a deep rose color, and I said to her, I said, uh, what kind of thread should we use to quilt this with? Oh, I was really tickled to get started, you know, on that quilt. And she says, well, I just used black. since said, you've got an awful lot of dark colors in it. So uh, she, we hang the quilt from the ceiling with cords, you know and put it in a frame, and she helped me to get started. And she didn't tell me to put to pull the knots through the lining, you know, and have them on the inside so they wouldn't show. She says, well, now, you just go ahead and quilt all the way across there, and I'll be back tomorrow and see how you're doing. <laughs> so I quilted all the way across one side, and she didn't tell me about the knots and where I'd tied those knots, you know, and I hadn't pulled them through, and there they showed, just in black knots. On underneath side, so when I rolled the quilt up, uh, I'd roll it up, you know, so we could walk under it and around it, and I looked up under it, and it looked like flies are sitting on the quilt, and I said, when she come back, I said, my goodness, I've just ruined this quilt, I said, I've got, uh, looks like flies are sitting on the lining, she says, my goodness, says, why didn't you pull them through? <laughs> And I said, well, you didn't tell
2: me. These clips with Donna and Zena also demonstrate the high level of patience and perseverance this type of artistry entails. These forms of art and by extension care are so meaningful in that when you pour yourself into these complex art forms and you give the end product, so to speak, to the people you care about, you're effectively telling a story without saying a word. There's definitely a thread between all of these interviews with how women, through their work with their hands, by cooking or working the land or quilting, are building our history and sharing a piece of themselves along the way. This is to say, we are very grateful for the women in our lives who have molded and cared for us in every twist and turn of our lives. Again, these recordings were from the Blue Ridge Parkway Folklife Project which includes sound recordings, videos, photos, manuscripts, and ethnographers' field notes, and that you can access on the Library of Congress website uh, for you to explore on your own. Next, let's bring in Thea
1: to discuss her experience interviewing Mary Shepard Burton. Mary Shepard Burton was an internationally renowned rug-hooking artist who was nominated for the National Endowment of the Arts National Heritage Fellow Award from 1996 to 1998. Mary also co-founded the International Guild of Hand-Hooked Rug Makers. The AFC also holds a collection of 12 of her hooked rugs, as well as video interviews of her and her home with Carl Lindahl and Thea Austin, who we are happy to welcome onto the podcast now. Thank you.
6: It's lovely to be able to talk about Mary. She was incredibly full of life and always bursting with ideas for her next project. I met her when she came to the AFC to talk about finding a home for her 12 rug cycle of stories from her family that
1: she had designed and completely created from scratch. So born in 1922, Mary just didn't discover her rug hooking talent until later in life, right? Or at least she didn't learn as a child? Well, that's right.
6: Both her mother and grandmother, I believe, had hooked rugs, but she really didn't get interested in exploring this particular textile art until she was an adult. She was inspired by the hooked rugs her minister's wife was creating, um, saw that, and she decided to try it herself. So she started experimenting, saving wools, and trying different techniques. Um, learning both on her own and from more experienced teachers. She didn't have a lot of time during the day because at at the time she was raising four little kids. So most of this she did at night. Um, and she became really, really obsessed with this. She was always, she was also always really interested in color. Even from a tiny child, she told me she would wear out crayons you know really really fast by coloring anything she could get her hands on from you know scraps of paper to the funny pages in the newspaper she just loved color so it was kind of natural that she got very interested in working with natural dyes rather than manufactured ones and since they weren't these natural dyes weren't readily available she did her own experiments in her home which actually included finding out that some natural ingredients like walnuts can be poisonous if you don't know how to handle them. So she went on this huge learning curve, but she went on to develop a huge range of natural dyes that she used in her own designs, as well as working with some manufactured dyes. She would take manufactured reds and oranges and she would wet them and let them bleed and create, um, new colors and mute them. She, she really was a master of color. And she was so dedicated to, to dyeing her own yarn that she actually built a dyeing room in her home as part of her studio, which Carl um, Lindahl and I saw when we visited her in her home for an
2: oral history we conducted. First, hi, Thea. Welcome to the Folk Life Today Women's Takeover. Uh, <laughs> I'm actually curious about how your interview came to be. Oh, well, I met Mary when she
6: came to the AFC to talk about gifting her rugs to us. Um, And Carl Lindahl happened to be doing some research in D.C. at the same time, met her too. So we decided it was a great opportunity to do some field work together and go out to her home to interview her and see her studio. So that's what we did. It was a great opportunity.
2: What was it like being surrounded by such impressive work Uh, that she made in her home. What did it look like? I'm I'm imagining like an explosion of color and texture.
6: Yeah, you know, she had such an artistic eye. Her home was beautifully decorated with traditional crafts and folk art that she had collected over the years with just her her artist's eye. I, I particularly remember something unusual she'd done in her kitchen. She had collected stereoscopic glass magic lantern slides from the 19th and early early 20th century. And she had st- installed them like a frieze at the top of the molding in her kitchen cabinets and then lit them from the back so that when the lights are on, you saw this beautiful ribbon of colored scenes from magic lanterns wrapping around the kitchen. It was just... It was so delightful and such a surprise to see something like that in there. I mean, everywhere you looked, there was beautiful art of some kind. She'd actually created quite a well-developed studio space with a special room for just dyeing wool and experimenting color, in addition to a big workroom for creating her rugs and teaching. She actually took um, students into her home sometimes and taught from there. She was incredibly generous with her time and information, and I think this is how she inspired and inf- influenced so many others really all over the world who wanted to learn from her to create their own art. Thanks,
2: Thea. Uh, your memories are so vivid. <laughs> I really do feel like I'm there
1: with you. Thank you so much for sharing that. Absolutely. Let's hear from Mary in her own words now.
0: Uh- 17, he left to go to Golda's Business School and came back, uh, whereupon he, as he walked through the post office door, his eyes met my mother's eyes. She was a beautiful young woman with long, long black, almost black brown hair, very uh, wavy but not curly, and she wore it high like a Cossack's hat.
4: Oh,
0: Um, they forged a long long time before they married because life was very hard together they built a house which they hoped to move into as soon as they were married
1: again that was mary shepherd burton internationally renowned rug hooking artist see her collections in the afc archive so It would be interesting to bring in the perspective of an AFC folklorist from our online collections to hear their thoughts on learning about people's traditions and connections to the environment. Michelle, I know you were listening to audio recordings made by Christine Cartwright, who served as a field worker in the Pinelands Folk Life Project, one of the center's field survey projects that focused on the cultures and livelihoods of people living in the Pine Barrens region of southern New Jersey.
2: That's right. The project took place over 1983 through 1986 and was led by AFC folklorist, Mary Hufford, with photographer Carl Fleischhauer co-planning it with her. And like you said, it centered on drawing out through interviews with residents and other documentation, traditional knowledge and ways of life of people in the region. As one of several field workers, Cartwright interviewed a number of residents and families in the region, such as farmers, including blueberry and cranberry growers, as well as quilters, and others living in and near the Pine Barrens. Her interviews generally focused on learning about their lives, their families, and their relationships between their cultural livelihoods and the landscape and ecological contexts. And I love to read field or field notes. So it is something I naturally gravitate towards when delving into the center's many online collections. In field notes, you learn not only about the subject of their research and documentation activities, but also at times, the experiences they themselves had and their own personal thoughts on their research, the research process, particular interviews or events they conducted or were at. Sometimes field notes paint vivid pictures of the scene, taking you into the places and spaces where the field worker was through their written reflections and thereby their eyes. But what is interesting with Cartwright's, quote, field notes is that in addition to her written audio logs and contributions to the overall project reports, she chose to audio record some of her fieldwork reflections. That is, she spoke them aloud into a recorder while driving across the region and even in between interviews. It's a really smart idea, actually, and I wish I had thought of doing that in some of my own long-ago research. In the recording, she reflects on interviews she had just conducted and that were fresh in her memory which again is super smart to document one's experiences, observations, and impressions right away, especially including what was talked about once the recorder was turned off or before it was even turned on. I love that we get to listen to her reflections in
1: almost real time, so to speak. Do you wanna share a particular clip?
2: Yeah, let's listen to Cartwright in what was likely the fall of 1983. She was driving on Route 70 near to the town of Medford, from what I can gather and she discusses something very interesting and rather philosophical. I'd say it's more so a general reflection on the project as a whole, and even on the skills one develops when engaging in cultural research and documentation work, especially when exploring the connections between culture and place.
0: I'm now driving on route 70, going uh, west from the project house, and i just want to record some general thoughts about the region and some of the things i've been driving past our eyes are now getting well we're getting visually literate is what's happening now that we're into the last few weeks of the project we're not as as bewitched bothered and bewildered by the the wilderness of equipment that we had to learn to use and the different types of paperwork that we had to do and the the crush of trying to to keep sight of the forest while recording the trees, as it were. I think for a long time, each of us was absorbed in getting down the mechanics of the project, figuring out our relationships and our social roles as field workers, that is our relationships to our informants, to the people we're working for, the center, and to one another as a group We've just returned from the American Folklore Society meetings, so we've had a, a break to rest our eyes and our minds on, on other things and reaffirm our professional identities. And I think it's done us a world of good. It certainly has me. Um, and now, as I drive down this road, which I've driven over several times, maybe 10, I suppose, I'm just coming into the Medford Circle, and I see so much more meaning um, in what's around me, in the cuteness of Medford, that Stuart Brooks called sportique, I see, I see what is sometimes called ruburbia, the middle class trying to become rural.
1: That was an excerpt from Christine Cartwright's Recorded Field Notes from 1983 part of the center's Pinelands Folklife Project Collection. It sounds like she was also reflecting on demographic changes too in the rural areas of southern New Jersey.
2: Yeah, in my interpretation, she was speaking about learning the language of the region through observation alone, that is learning the visual cues of culture as written into the landscape, and now she'd been observing that the suburbs were creeping into these traditionally rural areas how city people were moving into the region and the changes to the landscape and towns like Medford that were more and more noticeable. And that was in the 1980s. So we can only imagine the changes that have taken place since then in the region. So you mentioned that she also recorded her
1: thoughts in between interviews, capturing her post fieldwork reflections as they were fresh in her mind.
2: Yes. For instance, on September 19th, 1983, she interviewed Henry Webb about his work on his farm in Chatsworth and also about how he uses the woods. That is his relationship with ecology, essentially. The vast woodlands around him and his family's home and the knowledge that has been passed down to him with respect to gathering and hunting in the woods. And we're talking again about the Pine Barrens here. After her interview, she recorded her thoughts while driving on route 503. So in this next clip, you can hear her introducing the recording, providing the metadata as we often call it at the AFC and in archival work in general.
0: Today is September 19th, 1983. My name is Christine Cartwright, and this is my tape, F notes, CC0919. I'm recording field notes on the road between interviews for the Pinelands Folklife Project in the area we have marked number two, starting down route 503 through Chatsworth and continuing through the area as described on the tape following.
2: So that was how she announced the recording, setting the scene for those of us who are listening. And like I said earlier, sometimes field notes provide glimpses into the conversations that were had before or after the recorder was turned on and recording. So it sounds like after she interviewed Henry Webb, she ended up talking with his son, Mr. Webb Jr., about his job as a heavy equipment operator, as well as his own traditional knowledge of the surrounding woodlands. In fact, Cartwright finds it funny that Henry's son seemed to be very keen on being interviewed himself. So let's listen.
0: I got the impression that he would like to be interviewed because he kept me standing on the side of the road for an entire hour telling me all about the equipment he operates and the different injuries that he's had and when he left school to help his father work. A lot of things. So perhaps an interview will be scheduled later on in the field work. He's going to try to come home a little early tomorrow afternoon in
1: order to be there when Carl and I are there photographing. Again, that was a clip from Christine Cartwright's recorded field notes on September 19, 1983, as she was driving on Route 503 after an interview with Henry Webb and talking with Webb's son in Chatsworth, New Jersey. So I'm curious about the Webb's family traditional knowledge of the Pine Barrens, and I see on the map that Chatsworth is smack in the middle of them.
2: Yeah, on the map, you'll see that it is literally surrounded by the Pinelands and a number of nature preserves and wildlife management areas as well. In the same recording, Cartwright shares more about her conversation with Webb Jr., Henry's son. After all, she says they talked for an hour, again, after the the machine was turned off. In this next clip, we hear about Webb Jr.'s, quote-unquote, local awareness of plant species and woodland growth, knowledge that has been passed down to him by his family. In particular, he was telling a story in reference to a job of his on a construction site and how young birch trees were going to be cleared.
0: He he commented that the grapevine, if it's cut, will grow back twice as thick the next year. He said the same thing about young birch sprouts or young birch saplings. Uh, he works on a construction crew, he, he operates heavy equipment, he's a heavy equipment operator, and so he works by contract with, with uh, construction operations and moving heavy equipment from place to place. And um, the job that he's about to start on involves clearing out an area that has a heavy growth of young birch, just a couple of feet tall. And he said that he was going to ask his boss about letting his brother-in-law cut the birch since they were going to go in and destroy it. And he said that if they weren't going to destroy it and his brother-in-law went in and cut the young birch, it would grow back twice as thick the next year, too. This local awareness on the part of gathering families of the species that are benefited in their, in their regrowth by cutting, and the knowledge of how to cut them so that they will regrow is bound to be important in the local traditional uses of the land and and important in the whole concept of traditional guardians of the landscape, that this kind of practice has been traditional.
1: Once again, that was a clip from Christine Cartwright's recorded field notes on September 19, 1983. That's a good excerpt as it encapsulates what the Pinelands Folklife Project was about people's traditional knowledge of their environment and how it is shared and kept alive. It is also quite sad since Christine Cartwright was tragically killed in a car accident later in the fall of that year.
2: Yeah, it's very sad. Um, How about we honor her memory and her important contributions to the field with ending on a final excerpt from her very poetic and poignant field notes. Absolutely.
1: But let's also thank AFC audio engineer, John Gold and staff at LOC who helped deploy the podcast. Also, thanks to all those women who appear in this episode through recordings held at the AFC. And thanks for John and Steve for getting out of the way.
2: In this last clip from Cartwright, we will return to her reflections on and observations of the demographic and landscape changes of the Pinelands region. As the suburbs were obviously spreading into the rural areas in which she was working, In the full version of the recording, she calls this a, and I quote, tremendous juxtaposition of the urban and the rural, which she notes is strikingly evident when driving near Pemberton and areas nearby. Nonetheless, in the following excerpt, you can hear that she called the urban dwellers who are moving out into the country, Ruburbeans. So that's a, I'm thinking a combination of rural suburbians as she describes while driving on Route 70 near Medford. Thank you, Michelle. We will end with
1: an excerpt from folklorist Christine Cartwright's recorded field notes from 1983 as part of the AFC's Pinelands Folklife Project Collection. Thank you for joining us in this special edition in honor of women in the AFC. The people,
0: the Ruburbians in Medford that I've spoken with don't notice it, they don't see it. They see their community, not in terms of who used to be here or, or who it, whose community it used to be. Their sense of history uh, is very much a romantic one. Um, They like knowing about the past and they want to make it their own, but they don't really want to face the fact that by coming in, they're taking it away from somebody else or they're changing changing it, making the, the present into the past by changing the present, by making it impossible for older patterns of life to continue, although it might have been impossible anyway. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.